Well, thankfully, I'm not sick anymore, but I was a little under the weather uh, this last week. And as you know, my family has been recovering. So I kind of still feel myself clearing things out. So if at some point in the service I might need to, uh, yeah, uh, take care of that, then don't be, don't, be, uh, don't be bothered by that. But I have a little bit of show and tell for you guys today. And uh, I have this particular item in my pocket. And uh, you should be able to identify really quick what that is, and for anybody that has uh, good eyes, what is this? A Swiss Army pocket knife. And uh, this pocket knife is one that maybe you have. I'm sure if I were to ask you who owns a Swiss Army knife, a lot of hands would go up in the air. There's nothing really that special about a Swiss Army knife other than the fact that they're a well-made knife. The Swiss know what they're doing when they're making these little multi-tool knives. And this one is my Swiss Army knife. Uh, But this Swiss Army knife in particular is really important to me. You see, I think we all probably have a possession or two uh, that, that we've carried for a long time in our, our lives that has a lot of value for us, and this one is one of those ones for me. And the reason is, is because when I was a boy, my father gave me this little pocket knife. And if you were to look at it a little bit more closely, you would notice that, boy, this knife is really beat up. It works perfectly fine. It does all the things that a Swiss Army knife should do. It has all of the features right there. But if you were to look at it closer, you would notice that some parts are missing, some things are chipped, it's scratched all over, and it's been through a lot. And you could kind of expect that a boy that's going to have a knife for a long time is going to beat it up pretty good, and I definitely did that. So I've had this knife For over 20 years of my life, I think I've probably had it for 25 years or more. And it wears that age. And this knife is so, so special to me. In fact, I think it's one of the only possessions that I have that I really have a distinct memory of my father giving me one day. Just out of curiosity, I went online on Amazon and I looked up how much it would cost to buy this same exact knife if I were to buy it today. And the value on Amazon for this particular model is about 30 bucks. And now that's not a lot of money. It's not a small amount of money. It's $30 and $30 is still $30, but I would never pay $30 to replace this knife. Even though it's chipped and parts are missing and it's all beat up, This knife is worth more to me than the replacement of a $30. And why is it? Well, for the simple reason that my dad gave it to me. And he gave me this knife, something that I wanted, something that I admired, and he handed it down to me. So I've kept it for all of these years for that reason, that it's something special that my father gave to me. And hopefully if it can last long enough, I'll plan to give this to one of my kids, and, and um, I don't think there's any reason why I won't be able to do that. But I think we all probably have something in our homes or something of a possession of ours that is meaningful to us, and maybe for you it's not a Swiss Army knife, maybe it's something else, but we all have something that no monetary amount could ever replace because the amount associated with its value is more 
uh, more attributed to the memories that we have, the people that we associate things with. And that's what this knife is for me, and I'm sure that's what one of those items is for you. The question now is, is why does a Swiss Army knife, this Swiss Army knife, matter in a message like today? A message about the cleansing of God's temple. Well, I'd like to hopefully get to that pretty soon here. So at this time, I'd like for you to open up your Bibles to John chapter 2. John chapter 2. So for today, what I'm going to do is is we're going to read the entire passage that we're in today in the front end, and then we'll slowly work our way through it as I go through. I I think it'll make more sense this way. So we're going to start off with verse 13, and we're going to read all the way through to verse 22. So you follow along quietly as I read aloud. John 2, 13. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found, he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and other sitting at the temp- tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews then responded to him, what sign could you show us to prove your authority to do all of this? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. They replied, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you're going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scriptures and the words that Jesus had spoken. So a couple of weeks ago, or in fact, last, uh, yeah, two weeks ago, we talked about a very important miracle, the miracle that kicked off Jesus's ministry. And this was specifically the miracle at Cana when Jesus turned the water into wine. And we looked at how that miracle was very profound, not just because Jesus took something, water, and turned it into an entirely different element of wine, but rather that that offered some profound, symbolic foreshadowing, so to speak, of what Jesus's ministry was going to be like. You see, that water that Jesus had turned into the wine was a water that was used to cleanse the outside of one's body. And I think in very many ways, Jesus's ministry was going to be marked by cleansing what? The inside of ourselves. And so to speak, I think we see throughout Jesus's ministry a desire to not transform people from the outside in, but rather to transform people from what? The inside out. Because at the end of the day, what matters most about an individual? Their outward appearance 
their outward cleansing, or rather their hearts. So Jesus had a ministry directed towards transforming people's lives from the outside or from the inside out. Well, make no mistake, when Jesus makes his way to Jerusalem, this moment at the temple would have been within the last week of his entire life. As the children came on earlier on into the service and brought in palm branches and the likes, we sang a song about Hosanna, a song that would have been sung when Jesus entered into the city riding on a donkey, Hosanna in the highest. Well, it would have been customary for Jesus to have then gone into the temple for this time of Passover. If you didn't know, Passover was a time marking this important aspect of Jewish life. Specifically, looking back to the time that God freed the Israelite people, the Hebrew people, from the land of Egypt, from the slavery of bondage, and when God rescued them. So the Passover was a reminder specifically of the 10th plague that went on during that time. When blood was marked over the doorframe and the angel of death did what? Pass over all of the homes with the blood of the lamb on the door. So it was during this calendar season that people would pour into Jerusalem. If you didn't know, the population of Jerusalem was around twenty to 30,000 people. But during the Passover festivities, so many different people would pour into the city that the population of the entire town would balloon well into the thousands, five times the amount of people that typically lived in that city would pour into Jerusalem during this time. And Jesus was one of those many thousands of people that were there. You see, this time was so important to mark God's grace and goodness over the people. But when Jesus entered into the temple, what did he see? He saw one of the courts turned into a marketplace. Now, it's important to know that marketplaces were a normal thing for the Hebrew people. It would have been a normal thing within Israel to see a marketplace because oftentimes, because so many people were traveling to Jerusalem to make offerings to God, they would purchase those animals to be sacrificed while in Jerusalem. But the problem wasn't necessarily the act of selling the animals. It was where this was taking place. You see, if you didn't know, the area where this market was taking place was called the Court of Gentiles or the Heron. And the Heron specifically was the area dedicated to the Gentile court. Now, that might not mean much to you in today's modern audience, but the way that the temple worked, and I could show you a picture of the temple on the screen. That's not it. There we go. 
The way that the temple worked is the temple had many courts in it. In the outmost court, the outer court of the temple was called the court of Gentiles. And this was the only place, the only place in God's temple where people who were not Jewish, who had not had that faith as their own, would be able to go and worship the Lord. So it's amazing because this place was in very many ways God's dedicated place for outsiders of the faith to be able to do what? To be able to get to know the God of Israel. So it was a very important place because this place ultimately bridged the gap that separated outsiders from the land of Israel, outsiders from the Jewish faith, to be able to embrace, learn, and dedicate themselves to Yahweh. So when Jesus entered into God's temple, what did he see? He saw the area that was dedicated for being a beacon to the outside world, a beacon of being able to say, I might be the God of Israel, but in reality, I'm the God of all people, and my house is a house that is dedicated to the world. And what did he effectively see? He effectively saw his people cutting off the rest of the world from God. Think about that. He saw his people cut off the rest of the world from God. It would be similar to us as a church taking this place, a place that is meant to welcome all people, our church, we want to welcome all people. We might not call people to stay the way that they are, but we want to welcome all people to be able to come and encounter God here, to not come to leave the way that they came, but that they're welcome here. It would be like us saying, you can't come in. We've all heard of discrimination. We've all probably experienced discrimination of some form, shape, or another. Maybe it was racial discrimination. Maybe it's ethnic discrimination, uh, discrimination over finances, whatever it might be. And we all know what it feels like, for the most part, to experience someone saying, you're not good enough. You can't come in. You're not accepted. We don't want you. What kind of church would we be if we judged people before they came into the door and we only allowed certain people in? You have to be the right size, shape, or color to come into Peace Mennonite. That's not our culture. That's not our church. Why? Because we believe that the church is a mission for all people that God is the God of every single race and ethnicity, that God is the God of all people, that we all come here broken and with different backgrounds and experiences, but we all come here to worship God. 
Unfortunately, the Jewish people at that time decided to take the one area of God's temple that was meant to in some ways be the mission to the world. And they said, instead, I'm going to rededicate this place to do what? To exchange money, to sell things, to make profit, and to make it a place of business instead of a place of worship. So when Jesus walks into the temple, what do you think is going through his mind? I think what he is experiencing is a devastated heart. Because his whole life, his whole mission, everything that he's dedicated himself to, and what is coming in front of him, the cross that he is going to have to suffer, is all for what? It's all for the people of this world to be redeemed. And his people have taken the mission of God and they've turned it into a place to just make money. It would be like taking that thing for you, right? For me, this is that special gift that my dad gave me. And someone just taking that special thing that you have, that maybe your mother gave you, your father gave you, or a loved one gave you, and trampling it on the ground. Because that temple, that house, is God's house. And for that reason, it would have been incredibly devastating for Jesus to be able to witness these things. You see, if you didn't know, hundreds of years before this temple was built, and in fact, this was actually the second temple that was built because the first one was destroyed, God had allowed himself to dwell in a tabernacle. And I'll show you an example of what that would have looked like before the temple. And eventually, God went through the prophet of Nathan to David, and he said these words. He said, go, in 2 Samuel 7, 4 through 7, go and tell my servant David, this is what the Lord says, Are you the one to build me a house to dwell in? I have not dwelt in a house from the day I brought the Israelite up out of Egypt to this day. I have been moving from place to place with the tent as my dwelling. Wherever I have moved with all the Israelites, did I ever say to any of their rulers whom I commanded to shepherd my people, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? God's house is a special place. And the temple of God represented a home, a dedicated place, a dedicated land to say, Lord, we want you in our midst. We want to dedicate this place to you for you to be with us. Now, that might sound strange, right? Because God is God. Why does he need to live in a home? But it's so similar to how we experience, right, life. I remember when my children 
were born, specifically when Michaela was pregnant with Theodore. What was one of the first things that we did after she found out, after we found out that she was pregnant? I went in one of our spare bedrooms and I started to do what? I started to prepare a place for my son. I painted the walls, I purchased furniture, I got different things that I thought would please him and be enjoyable for him. You buy toys, you do all of these things. Why? Because you want to feel welcomed. And I wanted my child to feel like he was a part of our family. The same thing is true in having this temple be a place where we say, God, we want you with us. It's why even today, while we do not believe the church is four walls or the church is a building, the church is the people, which is good news because it means that we don't need a building to worship God. We just need people. But it's why when we are blessed enough to have a place like this, and make no mistake, we're very blessed to have a beautiful church building like this, why we say things and pray prayers like, Lord, this is your house. Lord, we want you to dwell in this place. Lord, we want your presence to be felt here in this place. Oftentimes a prayer for me on, on, for you guys is, Lord, I'm, and I'm praying this regularly, Lord, I pray that as people walk into our church, that they would feel your peace, that they would feel your hope, that they would feel a sense of the weight coming off of them and the goodness of who you are dwelling in this place. And here's the thing, God is not limited to a building. But for the people of that time in Israel, creating a temple for the Lord was making a statement to the world that we are God's people and God dwells in our land. But make no mistake, it was always a part of God's plans and mission to do what? to be a beacon of hope, not just for the Israelite people, but for all people. Amen? So when Jesus enters into the court and we see him enraged enough to create a cord of, and turn it into a whip, knock down tables, and drive people out, we're seeing a person that is very disturbed and horrified over what God's temple has become. I don't think the way that Jesus acted in that moment would go over very well today. I think if we saw that, or if I did that, there would be a lot of emails coming my way about how Pastor Kevin needs to get his anger in control, right? I mean, think about it. I mean, we have these sayings like, it's, easy, it's better to win people over with honey than, or it's better to win flies over with honey than vinegar, or it's better to win people over with a carrot than with a stick, you know? I don't think Jesus read Dale Carnegie's How to Win Friends and Influence People. But did Jesus sin in this moment? Absolutely not. Was Jesus justified in this moment? 
Absolutely he was. Because guess what, guys? There are things, guys and gals, there are things in this world that should horrify us. There are things in this world that we need to stand up for and we need to stand up for strongly. I'm not saying that every time we see injustice, we need to kick over a table, but we should not just go by idly and allow those things to happen because in some ways we're participating in that, right? We need to be bothered by the evil in this world and the injustices in this world and the misrepresentations of God in such a way that we're moved to do what? We're moved to act. Jesus didn't see the injustice and go, well, I'll, you know, try to talk to the church elders and request an audience and maybe write a strongly worded email and see what happens. He saw the injustice and he acted because he was living in the last moments of his life and he had full authority over that temple to be able to clean house. At the end of the day, that was his father's temple. It wasn't the Jewish leader's temple for that day. It was his father's temple. And he was about the work of who? His father. I would not let something as silly as a $30 pocket knife be taken from me and trampled on and destroyed, I'm very careful about if I'm going to lend this to somebody, which I'm probably not, <laughs> how they're going to use it and what they're going to use it for. Because this is something that represents my father. And if I could be that way, and if you could be that way, for the silly little things that we own, how much more would Jesus be that way? for the temple of God, for the thing that represents God's love for the world in the way that we are to experience and connect with him. Does this make a little bit more sense on why Jesus would be so outraged over what was happening in his house? I think it does. I think it paints a perfect picture on why Jesus would be so upset at what is happening in God's house. But there's some questions that we need to ask now because of this. Because here's the thing, church. We might not have a temple of Jerusalem in this day and age. We might not have a temple of Jerusalem in America. But we have a church. And we are the church. And the question now becomes, how is our temple? See, one of the beautiful things that we learn within Scripture after Jesus' death and resurrection is that who is the temple of God? We are the temple of God. God sees us as his temple. Because you see, up until this moment, God would 
his presence would come down at specific time periods. You see, because of the sin that was in the world, God would sometimes allow his presence to come down in certain and specific moments. We know this because we see it throughout scripture, right? God's presence coming down on Mount Sinai, God's presence coming down on the tabernacle or on the Ark of the Covenant. And we see this in different moments. God living and dwelling in the holies of holies within the temple. But you see, what Jesus did on the cross and what happened through the resurrection is instead of God dwelling in temples built by man, God was saying, I'm going to dwell now in the temple of my people. So by effect, we all became the new temples of God. Through Jesus' work, we became the new temples of God, where God's spirit was now going to dwell in us. Which if Jesus was as serious as he was, about the physical temple being a holy place, being a place that was worth cleaning and cleansing, then how much more should we be serious about who we are, about our temples? You see, oftentimes we unfortunately mistake love for this idea of just permitting and tolerating everything. When God's grace was bought at a very, very, very high price, his grace was not cheap, but the beauty of it is, is that he gives it freely, and we become the temples of God, where the Holy Spirit can dwell in. And so for that reason, one of the questions we need to ask ourselves is, do you take the work of God seriously? Do you take ownership over God's house, your temple, who you are, the church, this church, all of these things that are by effect a part of who God is? And it's why my simple big idea for you today is take ownership over the Father's house. Take ownership, if you could edit that, take ownership over the Father's house. Church family, that is what God wants us to do. He wants us to be a place and a people that is a light to the world. It's why I keep on saying every single week that your journey here at Peace Mennonite Community Church is not limited to Sundays. And in fact, if that's all you're doing in engaging the church of God and being a part of his mission is just coming on Sundays, you're not doing enough. You need to be thinking about how to be God's people to the world, how to be God's people here in this place. What ways are you connecting with God's people? What ways are you serving the church both inside and outside of the church? What ways are you giving to the mission of God? What ways are you worshiping God so that your life represents temple to other people?
You see, sometimes we get so caught up, church family, in thinking that mission work or evangelism work is getting people into the building. And that's not necessarily a bad idea, right? I've been kind of preaching for weeks now. Take one of those invite cards and invite somebody to Easter. And that is a good thing. But guess what? I want you to think about the fact that when you walk into a place People are walking into church because guess what? When Lena walks into a place, the people around her, whether they realize it or not, they just walked into church (laughs) because you are the church. When Beth, when you walk into a place, they just walked into church. (laughs) And we need to think in this way. That when people experience our lives, when people come into contact with us, that they are coming into contact with the very presence and temple of God. Now, of course, some people that are rather special have taken that to become self-appointed prophets and all sorts of wacky things. But I'm meaning it within the most simple sense that we get the privilege of being the church to other people, to being the temple to other people. And we ought to take that mission so seriously because God is always about the redemption and the love of all people. So much so that John, one of Jesus' disciples, the one disciple that through scripture we get the the positive affirmation of the disciple whom Jesus loved, said these words, by this everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Sorry, Jesus said that actually. By this you will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. This is how we are known. We are known through the love that we show and demonstrate to the world around us. You know, I remember when I got my first post as a youth pastor. They were both, both times that I was serving as a youth pastor at two different churches in particular that I'm thinking of. Both of the churches were to be quite honest, in a dying phase. The churches were, in some ways, they lost their direction over the years. And they became more aged. They stopped loving the lost. They stopped trying to focus on the mission of God. So because of that, so many things fell at the wayside. Now, the church didn't want to stay there, right? And that's why they obviously hired a youth pastor, because they wanted to believe that God was calling them to a new life cycle. And I remember my first week at youth ministry at this church, two kids showed up. Both of the kids were pastor's kids, too. One of them was the children's ministry director. The other one was the pastor's daughter. And that was my youth group. And I remember scratching my head and thinking, you know, My last youth group was 300 kids, and here I have two. Okay, God, let's see what you do. And very, very early on, I knew that we needed to prepare a place for the kids. 
You see, if you went into the youth room, it was a very, very sad place. It was the darkest place in the entire church. There was only two tiny windows. And it was the place that I called the place where furniture dies. If somebody in grandma's living room had a 20-year-old, 30-year-old couch that needed to go, the thought was, well, why don't we give it to the youth room? It got so bad that I just got to a point where people tried to offer furniture, and I said, sorry, we don't accept that anymore. Here's a number to Goodwill or Salvation Army. Maybe they'll pick it up for you, but we're not accepting that anymore. It was the ugliest, darkest place And I asked one day to some of the leaders in our church, what do you think this communicates to our children? Does it really communicate to them that here is a place for you? Here is a place where we value you? Here is a place where we want you to come and do life and and, and feel like this is a place where you can fellowship? Now, don't get me wrong. You don't need much to feel loved in life. And in fact, I would say things don't, allow somebody, for the most part, to feel loved. Love is oftentimes a commitment between to just be there for somebody. But I believed in this particular case that we needed to do something about this space, that we needed to change this space into a space that said, we want you here. We want you to hang out here. We want you to come here after school. We want you to come here before youth nights, hang out, eat pizza, do whatever, and just be able to be here because we value you, and here is a place for you. So we did that. A few parents and I, we got together, we got a whole bunch of paintbrushes out, and we just totally transformed the place on a budget. And the place looked like night and day difference. And it was kind of like that movie, build it and they'll come, you know? (laughs) And it wasn't just because we made a nicer space, but it was because as a church, we decided that we were going to be a place that cared for this generation. And that building, that room was just one piece of it all. So sometimes I ask myself that question still, especially as the pastor of this church, what kind of place are we preparing here? And I don't just mean all the, you know, new posters that we've been putting up or these beautiful banners that we have around the church. But what kind of place are we preparing? Are we preparing a place, a temple, that when people come in, they get that feeling of God's presence? That they really believe that they can grow in their discipleship journey here? I think so in many ways. But in many other ways, I say, boy, we got work to do, right? And that is the beautiful thing that God invites us to be a part of. He he invites us to be a part of the Father's work. He invites us to be a part of doing the things that Jesus himself got to do, of being the temple to others, of threading ourselves into this wonderful gospel mission. And I believe all of us, all of us are called to this. Amen? We need to take ownership of the Father's house, which is really two meanings. 
You need to take ownership over your house, your temple, because that's the Father's house too. Because guess what? If you're a believer, the Father dwells in you. But we also need to take ownership of this house. Amen? And we need to make this house a place. We need to continue to make it a place that people feel loved, that people feel like they can walk into this place and grow in their faith and experience God. And I know that that is already a place for many of you, but we want to make it a place for many more. At least that's my heart. I know you feel the same way. Because at the end of the day, guys, there is nothing greater that we can do than to be a part of the mission of God. Because unfortunately, as we see sadly on the news every single day, every single week, people need hope. They need life. They need God. They need redemption. They need purpose. They need something that the world is not giving them that we have, that love, that hope, that redemption. That's what this week is about, about being reminded that there is nobody here that needs to live a hopeless life or needs to live with the guilt of sin over their life, but that we can all, all of us, experience redemption. As we'll learn this upcoming Friday and Sunday, Jesus took that seriously. And he would destroy his own body for the sake of all others. And I want to encourage you this week especially to make a strong push, to not allow this week to be lost to the history books of your own life meaning just forgotten. Take time this week to think about the Father's house, to think about Christ and his sacrifice. And I'm sure if you do, you'll be all the richer for it. So let's go ahead and pray.